This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Dr. Daniela Schwarzer. Daniela Schwarzer is the Executive Director for Europe and Eurasia at the Open Society Foundations. And from November 2016 to April 2021, she was the Director of the Deutsche Gesellschaft für Auswärtige Politik. Welcome to the podcast, Daniela. Thank you, Paul. Very happy to be with you. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is actually in a very, if you won't mind, a pedagogic sense, explain to our listeners, the non-German listeners at least, uh, the current state of the coalition talks in Germany and, and how uh, your prediction, how confident are you there'll be a successful outcome in the coming weeks? So this week, the next phase of the negotiations um, is starting. So uh, the three parties that want to form a government coalition, they have negotiated for several weeks in several thematic groups um, and have started drafting text, which is going to be the coalition treaty. But obviously, they weren't able to solve all the issues. So what they did is they handed in their chapters last week, Wednesday and Thursday. And now the um, presidents of the parties and the secretary generals are sitting down and they are looking at the whole. Um, and they will have to, first of all, deal with the very tricky issues where agreement may be difficult. And then eventually they will also start speaking about who gets how many ministries and who gets which ministry. Um, the Greens are the second largest party next to the Social Democrats who won the elections. So the Greens will have one very important ministry, which will be combined with the vice chancellorship. And then three to maximum four others. And the Liberals, the FDP, are the smallest coalition party, and they will probably end up with three to four ministries. So in the end, it will be about it will be about ministries and in particular names, but that is far too early to say at this point in time. Okay, well, just to remind ourselves, as we speak, the Chancellor of Germany is still Angela Merkel, correct? Uh, just case is, we... and she's still acting Chancellor, and there were quite a few jokes out that she would be the one uh, to read the New Year's speech, but uh, probably the handover of power will happen during the first week of December. That's what's planned, and it looks like that they are quite well on track. I hope they're on track because I'm not sure Frau Merkel could come back to the European Council in December, having bid all of her farewells at the last European Council a couple of weeks ago. But more seriously, I think it is. I think it's genuinely confusing to uh, to many people uh, what to expect from the Chancellor designate Olaf Scholz because he did, as you know, much better than I do, fight his campaign on the, on the basis of continuity and change, which sounds like a bit of a contradiction in terms. So, so how, how different do you think he will be or how similar by the same token will he be to Angela Merkel uh, as the new chancellor? Olaf Scholz was in the previous government as not only finance minister, which is arguably the, the most important ministry, he was also vice chancellor. So he really, really worked very closely with Angela Merkel and he is the architect uh, with the outgoing chancellor of the European Recovery Fund, together obviously with other governments, in particular the French, but he is someone who brings quite a lot of experience, obviously domestic, European, but also international 
experience uh, to the office. So in that regard, I think there will be quite a lot of continuity. However, he's a social democrat. And while Merkel was or still is an acting uh, conservative chancellor who moved very much to the center, he is a social democrat who also is in the center, but still a social democrat. So some of the things that will be changing if we believe uh, what has been said about the ongoing coalition negotiations is that uh, the new government would be more ambitious on uh, social and labor market policies. For instance, the minimum wage in Germany is very probably going to increase. There is a stronger focus on, on just climate transition. So how does this, you know, this necessary transformation of our economy, of our society, of the way we, we live and work and travel, how can this be done in a way that those uh, who are the weakest within society are also taken care of. So those are issues he, he will bring to, or he brings to the table. But I would say in terms of European policy and international affairs, there will be quite a lot of continuity. So when it comes to, to Europe, the European Union more specifically, do you buy into this, this thesis about Germany for quite some time being the so-called reluctant hegemon that it runs, leads in Europe, but it doesn't really particularly feel comfortable with that leadership role? Do you go along with that well-known established thesis? Germany has played a very important role uh, over the past decade and more. I think it became most visible uh, about 10 years back, a little more, when the sovereign debt and banking crisis hit the European Union. And it was all about the question, will Germany move on Greece? And uh, what shape will the German government want to give any kind of rescue package? which wasn't only a political question, but in our country also a constitutional question, because as the largest economy, it was clear that Germany would, 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 would take the, the, the biggest sort of burden of, of guaranteeing for, for Greece in the rescue mechanisms that were, uh, that were being put up. So Germany had a naturally strong say in how this all would work out. Of course, it wasn't only the member states that, that uh, developed and supported those rescue packages. The International Monetary Fund was there, the commission was there. But this was really the time when the focus was very much on Berlin and it was more seen as a veto player than as mm. an entrepreneur. We remember very well how, how much criticized Germany was because it moved so slowly uh, on, on the Greece rec Greek rescue package. Later then, Germany took a very strong role when Russia uh, moved ahead with the annexation of Crimea and actually with, with violence and military uh, presence started changing borders in Europe. Um, obviously, uh, the response on the side of the Europeans was not a military one, but one of negotiations and uh, Angela Merkel together uh, with um, the French president started leading the negotiations with Russia and, and Ukraine. And then there was another incident of, of German leadership that was on the migration crisis. And here, Angela Merkel pushed through a very yeah, forward-leaning, open uh, approach towards migration, basically inviting roughly a million refugees from Syria and neighboring countries to come to Berlin because she feared that the burden on those countries who don't accept uh, migration that easily would be too heavy and that's, that this could have you know, strong political repercussions. And it eventually did and still has today. So the plan didn't quite work. While Germany managed to, to integrate uh, the refugees and today you know, this is no longer such a big issue in our society, uh, the repercussions on the EU 
were very strong and can still be felt today as we look at uh, the uh, ongoing flows into uh, Mediterranean countries, in particular Greece, but also Italy and others. Um, but now also the new situation on the Polish eastern border towards Belarus, where the mm. migration issue comes in a very different shape and form, because we have a neighboring country that basically engages in human trafficking and brings brings humans to the border to put pressure on an EU country. And this is a new challenge that, that the EU will have to deal with. Another well-established thesis is this idea of a, the Franco-German axis. Do you think that is still a, a relevant concept at the end of 2021? And if so, the new chancellor coming soon, uh, Herr Scholz, will have the same kind of relationship with Macron, President Macron, that Frau Merkel did? For big European projects to move forward, I, I think uh, that very close Franco-German cooperation is a necessary condition, but it won't be a sufficient one. So both Paris and Berlin really have a big, uh, a big task to bring others along. While the two are big players, just uh, you know, just below fifty percent of of GDP of the eurozone sits with those two countries. Um, it isn't quite enough if they agree. And so the challenge here is, um, depending on which issue we pick, be it in the field of security and defense, or be it in the area of eurozone governance. There are political divisions in the European Union which are quite substantial. And in many ways, as integration moves forward and is, is, is deeper than it used to be, it is more, more sensitive politically to move that extra step. Look at uh, the governance of the euro area and the missing bits and pieces that are all named. And a lot of studies are out there to say exactly what needs to be done, for instance, to complete financial markets uh, union or banking union, but the reluctance of the countries, including on the German side, is there to, to make those steps because it really touches on sensitive national questions. So Paris and Berlin need to agree if anything is going to move forward, but um, they should do this in, in larger groups, of course, and bring on the East, the North and the South. And we have seen over the past years how groups of smaller countries actually shape up in order to prevent too much Franco-German leadership. The Hanseatic League is an example of mostly northern, northeastern countries that were very skeptical, uh, among other things, of the European Recovery Fund, which, which was of, of Franco-German handwriting. Well, we're going through quite a list of, of concepts. I'll throw one more at you, then we'll move on. Uh, strategic autonomy. Uh, again, there's a lot of talk, as you know, since certainly since uh, Ursula von der Leyen became president of the European Commission about what well, she talks about, obviously, about a geopolitical commission, but obviously, by extension, a geopolitical EU. Uh, and historically, at least, push back if you don't agree. Germany is seen rather more reluctant to get involved in that kind of debate compared to, say, France. Uh, again, are the, are the contours of that discussion changing? And is Germany coming around more to the idea that it has to, through the European Union, play a much more geopolitical role in the world? Yes, there are different phases in that discussion. And uh, <laughs> it really accelerated when Donald Trump was US president. And even the Germans realized maybe we can't rely on transatlantic relations in the way we like to do and, and, and now are kind of back doing. Um, if, if there's a US president who, who really has no interest in, in very close cooperation with Europe and quite the contrary, puts a lot of political and economic pressure on particular Berlin. The term is actually older uh, than this current commission. Um, it, is, it can be found in the uh, 
European global strategy, uh, which is now six years old. And even before that, it was mentioned in uh, conclusions of uh, the European Council, which is the meeting of heads, and state, heads of state and government. So what does this term say? From the perspective of some, it is about making the EU more able to act, to take its own decisions, to you know, do the necessary preparations, to have the, the instruments and the resources in place to then act upon their own decisions. And um, it is mostly seen as totally compatible with NATO and European member states' commitment to the Transatlantic um, Defense Alliance. However, there are others, and that's why this timing uh, with the Trump presidency is so interesting. Some actually use the term politically to suggest, and the French were, were part of that discussion, that Europe has to get more autonomous um, and be able to act without the United States. So it was positioned as a kind of alternative concept mm. to this deep reliance on transatlantic security guarantees as part of NATO. Europe is extremely far from being able to defend itself. Uh, it will take very long. So this is, in my view, a debate which um, shouldn't be exaggerated. And the German government doesn't really like the term strategic autonomy. Uh, the previous one, including during its EU presidency, uh, used the term European sovereignty, which mm -hmm. may not be that much better, but which <laughs> was that they want to differentiate themselves from France. I think the important message today is not only because we run the risk of again being in a situation where America moves away uh, from, from Europe, uh, but also in order to be a more interesting partner to the Americans, to the Canadians within NATO, we have to be far better in, um, in cooperating as Europeans, in pooling and sharing, and in yeah, pooling resources, going into defense projects together, doing all the necessary things so we can build a European pillar within NATO. And once we have that, we will have the capacity to act on our own in a much better way than now. Just to give you one very practical example, of course, Europeans discussed when America decided to pull out of Afghanistan and there was this very ambitious timetable and the end of the mission uh, scheduled for uh, the very symbolic date of the 11th of September, coinciding with the attacks on the World Trade Center. Europeans, of course, discussed because evacuation didn't go as fast and as, 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 as wide as, as they wanted to. Can we stay on? And we couldn't because Europeans couldn't secure Kabul airport. And military experts say, well, in terms of capacities, Europe could have done that, but we wouldn't probably have been able to decide together <laughs> and to deploy the resources together in the time that was required. So they were entirely dependent on the US um, defined timetable. So you have a new book out, Daniela, called Final Call, only available in German, at least for the moment, I understand. But what was the inspiration for the, your latest publication? What, what, and what are, what are the main arguments, briefly, that you, you'll deploy in that book? I published the book just ahead of the German elections in German because it's supposed to be for a uh, really broad German readership. It's not right. a book. It is a book for experts as well, but it is easily written. And what it tries to set out is, um, the extent to which the international context in which we sit as Germans, as Europeans, how, to what extent it has changed, how the security and risk environment has changed, how the world has become more geopolitical, how um, 
the instruments which with which the international environment is being shaped by others and pressure put onto us has changed and that Europe and Germany really have to think very hard how we defend our own interests in a better way and how we can actually be a stronger actor in the world, shaping uh, the international order, shaping our relationships with partners and allies, and the whole question of who are actually our allies in, in this world today and in the future is an important one. So the book first looks at the world as it changes. It then looks at the state of the European Union and runs through the crisis of the past one and a half decades. And each time it asks, can we make a case that Europe actually grew stronger through the crisis? Was, was there anything we, we learned and implemented? And then to what extent did the crisis um, actually increase political tensions, um, divergence, economic social divergence and um, political polarization between member states, but also within countries? And the picture that emerges is a very complex one and actually a very worrisome one because the internal cohesion of the European Union is weakened. Political volatility and polarization has risen. So the conditions to actually strengthen Europe aren't better than they used to be. However, there's a bigger sense of urgency to actually do this. And the book looks then at Europe between the US and China, obviously with a clear assumption that Europe is part of the political West and has a very, very strong overlap with the United States, but it also has its good reasons to become stronger as an actor in itself. And it then goes through a number of measures that Europe should take, both internal ones to consolidate and to increase the resilience of our own democracies, and then what it should do as an international actor to be a stronger shaper of the world that is emerging, where China obviously plays a huge role as a systemic competitor that questions and that actually wants to weaken uh, many of the things that make or have made Europe as strong as it, as it is. And yet we are dependent economically, but also because we have to tackle transnational challenges with China, like such as health issues, COVID, for instance, or climate. We need cooperation with China. And this book tries to answer the question in a very pragmatic way. What does the German government, what does the EU, what does Europe in a larger sense need to do to be precisely that actor in the world? But this, this notion that the EU and Germany has to be, has to find a way to cooperate in, in certain areas, certainly with China, is that in stark uh, contrast to the situation, the position of the US? Because you'll know also that the US, until quite recently at least, has been putting rather unsubtle pressure, some might say, on the European Union to be more robust and to join, join with the US in, having a, in building a common front against China. How realistic is it for the European Union? maybe through German, German's leadership, Germany's leadership, to, to forge a, a distinctive uh, own position on China, which is distinct from that of the United States. The economic interdependence between Europe and China is, is more developed between China and, and the US. So this goes both ways. I mean, as much as Europe has an interest not to decouple from China, China doesn't want Europe to decouple. But we also see that China in some areas at least wants to move away uh, from Europe and others and be more sort of self-sustained, create its own regulatory spheres and that way uh, indeed um, contribute to this moving apart of, of the sort of 
world of China and its partners and, and then the West, because we are really in an era of systemic competition, which has very practical consequences, for instance, in, the, in this sphere of digital and, and technology. In my view, Washington will continue to expect from uh, the Europeans that they side with the US, in particular when it comes to political issues, to security concerns, uh, when it when the question is how do we position ourselves in the Indo-Pacific where uh, the interests are aligned that obviously maritime security and free passage needs to be secured. However, we may have different readings on what the right reaction uh, would be uh, from uh, the US and Europe if China decided to attack Taiwan. And there I can only say it is of huge importance that the US and Europeans run through those scenarios, in particular also with partners in the Indo-Pacific like Australia, like Japan. So if there is a move by China that uh, they are not divided and don't know what to do, but are actually prepared for, for scenarios. I think on the European side, uh, the preference would be to react with economic sanctions and obviously not militarily. But at the same time, we know that not only the US, but also key European players have a pretty robust military presence in the Indo-Pacific, uh, France, for instance, the UK, for instance. Germany just sent its first uh, frigate there, which is now part of, of missions with, with allies in, in the Indo-Pacific, in particular North Korea. So this is a big move from the German perspective compared to the military presence of the US and other Europeans. It's a small mm. move. But we are moving towards a more informed and deeper strategic debate on Europe's interest in the Indo-Pacific. Well, you said that Europe has to be more pragmatic. Uh, but do you accept also the argument that Germany is particularly pragmatic when it comes to China because of the strong, uh, well-established economic interest it has in the, the ch uh, exporting to the Chinese market? And also, moving on briefly uh, to, to, to Russia also, Germany has a particular relationship with, with Russia because of energy issues, a gas supply, uh, and, you, and therefore Germany is trying to push the European Union along a path which, is, which is, suits essentially Germany's self-interest. Germany clearly has its own approach to both players. To China, because of those economic ties, it is the margin of maneuver for a German government in the short term is actually not that big because economic costs and the economic interests are huge. So from my perspective, we have to have this debate, but we have to contextualize it in a realistic way, saying what is our economic growth model if we think that for political reasons, for human rights reasons, for security concerns, because we don't want to be you know, tapped by the Chinese when we have economic presence in their market, you know, we need to have this very honest debate. Are we ready and how to move out of the Chinese market or to at least decrease our presence? And what do we do with investment of China in the EU and in Germany? And how do we think about trade going forward? So this question goes pretty much to the nature of our economic growth model going forward. And the important thing is that Germany never denies that the single market, uh, the European single market, but also transatlantic relations and the economic ties we have with the US are of key importance. And this is not only an economic growth argument, it's really this big political argument that it is better to have an overlap uh, with sort of economic ties and the same norms and values and systemic perspectives. 
And China here is, is a big problem, but we have seen movement. There's far more caution today. Look at the Huawei debate in Germany on 5G, which started out as a discussion on who delivers the best technology when at which price. And it has turned into a, 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 a realistic and sober discussion. What do we actually buy if we get Huawei? Uh, build the 5G network in Germany? What are the risks we are importing in terms of uh, spying, data theft, uh, blackmail potential? And, and I think here we could see over the past few years that the stance that Germany took under the pressure, mostly of its parliament actually, uh, and with a realistic input from the German industry, which was the first to say uh, in the domestic debate through a really good report, Uh, that China is a systemic competitor and that we have to be very careful. Just one more example uh, how Europe's view on China has changed and not just under this new geopolitical commission, as it calls itself, led by Ursula von der Leyen. Her predecessor, Jean-Claude Juncker, was the architect of uh, an investment screening mechanism, which took quite some time uh, to be translated into national law, but now it's there. So the member states screen FDI, also obviously coming out of China, report where it goes, say no if they don't want to have this investment in sensitive parts of the value chain or in strategic industries. And COVID has done its part to really create this level of alertness that economic ties, which used to be a guarantee for stability and cooperation, are actually now, in some cases, a source of vulnerability. Um, and dealing with that is new for the EU, also new for Germany, which is one of the most open economies of the EU. So it is a particular problem here. On Russia, the situation, I think, is different, of course. We have energy Uh, dependence here, um, but we also have a geopolitical view which is very much influenced by the understanding that we are pretty close neighbors um, and that Russia really, I mean, sits on our eastern doorstep and intervenes heavily in the eastern neighborhood of the European Union, is quite present in the EU as well through hybrid means, tries to destabilize and really tries to Uh, the, the, the Russian President Putin really tries to build his own power by an enhanced and, and, and yes, very controversial role that Moscow plays in international conflicts, for instance, in the Middle East, but also mm. in Africa. And so here we have a neighbor who really claims a seat at the negotiation table and does this with very brutal means tries to destabilize right up to our eastern borders of the EU. Again, uh, Belarus is an example here. The situation in Ukraine is, of course. Mm. And so um, the German approach has always been, and not only because of energy dependency, but more because there's this understanding, if we don't negotiate, if we don't talk to each other, we won't be able to move ahead. This is really the, the fundamental approach in Germany, no one at this point believes in this former policy, which was called a modernization partnership with that idea that if we only build very close ties with Russia and help the modernization of the economy and the country, this will eventually lead to a political system that is closer to ours than the current one is. No, there's no illusion about Putin and his system today. It's an authoritarian, very brutal regime, not only within Russia, but also in other countries. 
Um, however, we, we need to find some way to keep the communication going. At least that's the current view of, of the outgoing government. And I do believe that the next government will try to build on that. However, given the green participation in government, um, the emphasis on human rights uh, will probably be stronger. Right. One brief final question, Daniel, because we have to finish quite soon. We've been looking outwards for the past few minutes. Now let's let's finish off by looking again inwards. How confident, how how optimistic are you about the the, the, the internal cohesion of the European Union? You know that EU is faced, you, some might say, it is ever so, uh, by so many dif- differences internally. Do you still have a, in, a intrinsic confidence in the viability of the European project? I believe we know now more than ever, I would always say, how important it is that we hold the EU together. Um, And the EU is, most of all, a single market. It's a single currency. It's a union that is based on on a certain set of values of which rule of law is really the key principle. And that's where it's so tricky because we have two countries uh, that deliberately and very visibly uh, violate those principles. uh, That is Hungary and um, Poland. There are others who are moving in that direction, and that is extremely worrisome. And one of the biggest struggles, really, for the European Union, whether it can whether it can hold together this unity uh, where uh, rule of law and uh, the mutual recognition of, of of courts and of 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 laws are actually guaranteed, because that's the fundament of of the single market as well. So we are in a very difficult phase, but. If you look at the world around us, and only very few countries are not part of a broader European consensus. For instance, Hungary has a very close relationship with uh, with Russia uh, and doesn't hide that. But the others actually are moving towards a more coherent assessment of the risks and threats out there. And in March next year, the so-called strategic compass will be published, which is essentially a document that looks at our neighborhood and the the world around us and uh, assesses um, European interests and European um, needs to act. And I think that's going to be another small step in a series of initiatives that try to add something to the EU as it has been that recognizes that Europe has to strengthen its internal discussion and the readiness to act together before it can actually tackle those challenges out there. And the drive also through the COVID-19 crisis to work more closely together in some of those areas that are key, I think that is there. Plus we have the recovery fund, which really pushes the green transition, which will help Europe eventually, if, if successful, to be a stronger actor on climate internationally, which obviously we need to do if we want to prevent climate change. Um, so I think that the picture is is a mixed one. I do not want to um, pretend there are there are not really serious internal tensions and egoisms of some countries and so on. That that's all very true. But if you look at the bigger picture, I think the case for close European cooperation is is very important. And we do not have that much time to lose. Climate change is a driver. The next US elections coming up in three years is another one. China's rise is the third one. They are all super important. And I think Europe really has all good reasons to to make an extra effort to work better together. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Daniela Schwarzer, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me.